Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about The Goldfinch, and I am happy to be joined once again by my friend Fred Cobb to talk about this uh, something of a movie. Fred, what's up? Oh, I'm just happy to be here and talk about the cream of the crop with you, as always. Yeah, I don't even know what the opposite of like cream of the crop is, but I mean, that might be a more apt description uh, for this movie. And I'm going to attempt to do the impossible and give some kind of description of this movie. The Goldfinch is uh, the new film from director John Crawley, who, you know, he did Brooklyn a couple years ago, so he's pretty well thought of. Uh, it's based on the novel by Donna Tartt, and it stars Ansel. The novel came out in 2014, it star, or 2013, and she won 14. a Pulitzer for fiction for it in 2014. And it stars Ansel Elgort. And Oaks Fegley and Finn Wolfhard and Sarah Paulson, Nicole Kidman, Jeffrey Wright, a bunch of people that you've like are very well familiar with. So a loaded cast and pretty epic novel, I would say. I'm going to ask Fred about it because I know he read it. But it, uh, Ansel Elgort plays the older version and Oaks Fegley plays the younger version of Theo Decker, who when he was 13 was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art when there was a, a bombing, a terrorist attack of some sort, and his mom is killed. He had, right before the bombing, he happened to be standing next to an older guy and a younger girl. And after the bombing, the older guy, before he dies, gives him a ring, tells him to go take it to this business. Also says to go, hey, put that painting right there that fell on the ground in your backpack. And so he does. And <laughs> turns out that painting is a pretty famous painting known as the Goldfinch. He ends up kind of temporarily going to live with his family, but at the same time uh, also becomes friends with the old guy who gave him the rings business partner who runs an antique shop. That guy is also played by Jeffrey Wright. His name is James Hobart, also known as Hobie. He's taking care of the little girl from the museum, Pippa. They become friends. She goes away to live with some family. Right as it looks like uh, uh, Theo is going to become a part of this family that's taken him in, the Barbers, the matriarch of is played by Nicole Kidman. Uh, his his or his long lost dad, who is a recovering alcoholic, shows up, played by Luke Wilson, and says, "Hey, we're going back to live in Las Vegas." He ends up living there, but then we'll get to what happens there later. But he, let's just say after a while, he comes back, and all of a sudden, he's kind of thrown back into this world in New York, kind of involving the art world, but involving this family that had helped raise him, and it's. It kind of goes from there. I, I, I could be here for another 10 minutes if I try and explain any more than that, and I'm sure we'll cover it pretty well. Fred, I need, I need to throw it to you so I don't end up rambling about this movie because there's certainly a lot to ramble on. But you read this book, and I want to uh-huh. ask you about the book because you did tell me as you were watching it uh, or as you were reading the book, like you were becoming less and less confident it could be adapted into a movie. So I'll ask you one. Did you like the book, and you were just kind of having those worries, or were you kind of uh, lukewarm on the book and just even more pessimistic about it it being adapted into a film as you were reading it? Just what was your experience doing that, knowing you were going to be seeing this movie pretty soon after? So I wouldn't say it's a perfect book, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a very impressive book just because it somehow manages to create a story set in modern day and give it a very epic scope. And a part of that is just that he moves around a lot and that he has so many different characters he interacts with. But the more important thing is, and this is why I was very skeptical, it would make for an interesting movie adaptation, is that the whole story is told from the first-person perspective. Ah. And Theo is obviously somebody who went through a very traumatizing experience when his mom was killed in the bombing, He's somebody who suffered from tremendous guilt because he obviously survived the incident and he wasn't with his mother when the incident happened because he was so absorbed by the girl, mm-hmm. Pippa, who was standing there. And that's why he um, stuck around while his mother moved on to the next room where the actual detonation happened. And he's also somebody who becomes a drug addict. And as a result, a lot of the perspective that he shares with us is kind of muddled. It's a bit confusing. It's like an unreliable so, narrator type of thing. Exactly, yeah. So you get, first of all, a lot of insight into his mindset. And that's, I think, one of the bigger weaknesses of the novel, too, because Donna Tartt has a tendency to kind of ramble on with very flowery language, hmm. which to an extent intentional because Theo's mind is very messed up. But sometimes it just drags on for a while. And that's where it kind of became difficult to stick with the book for a while. But it is very impressive to really be part of his thoughts because there are a couple of reveals later in the book that come absolutely out of nowhere and that hit very well because he portrayed it in a very different way. And all of a sudden, when reality catches up with him, 
uh, it makes the kind of impact that you hope it would. So it's a very interesting perspective from somebody who you don't always know if you can take at face value. Right. Yeah, you know, this isn't what you're saying, but I think it's pretty interesting how you describe it that way is what you thought the book's limitations might be because I was like, oh, well, if it spans over many, many years and it involves uh, – um, a lot of, a couple different timelines and jumps back and forth. Like, yeah, maybe that could be challenging. But then I realized, like, I just saw it chapter two, which is the second part of a book that's like over a thousand pages and jumps between two timelines. And I didn't think uh-huh. it, it chapter two is great, but like it has some redeeming qualities, and I really like the first it. So that doesn't like prohibit you from like making a good movie. But at the same time, I think you really have to have to just a really good grasp of the material. And as I was watching the Goldfinch, I was I guess I was just like hoping it would be like one specific thing. And it tried to be everything and then became – because of that, it was kind of about nothing, at least to me. I was just uh-huh. – I saw it with our friend Kayla, and uh, at the end, I was like, man, I, I, I just don't know why I'm supposed to care about it. You know, I, 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 it, Maybe it's just a big challenge if you're not totally inside his head. I did laugh a couple times at the – just at how crazy some of the language was, whether he was doing a voiceover, which I mean is probably there to kind of aid you in getting inside his head like you can yeah. with a first-person book. But like the first thing, he's like, I was wearing a bespoke coat. Or something like that, and we yeah. we, we, we we just started cracking That's up. Taking like, straight from the book, yeah. Go okay, games. okay. Well, maybe it reads differently when you're doing it like that. But and we'll t- I'm, we'll have to talk about Ansel Elgort and who I do normally like, but maybe it had to, something to do with him being the one saying that in that particular tone of voice. But I was just man, I I, I just I, I can't take this guy seriously. It's um this this kind of seems kind of ridiculous. And if maybe if you're more in his head and you have a better sense of who he is because you're reading a book in the first person, you get a better idea towards the end of the movie of why this painting actually means that much to him because the way this movie ends like it ends on a note where it's like man i i guess i could see why that might be a satisfying ending with a certain version of this story but i got to understand why you really cared about this painting that much and i and i I just don't think it ever got to that point yeah so part of the problem is that they made some very pointless adjustments in the movie that really ended up hurting it even more than it already would have so i think there are inherent limitations to adapting a book that's told from the first-person point of view from a character that you're so engaged in. But the time drums that you mentioned, those don't happen in the book. Oh, I th- oh, it doesn't go back and forth? Oh, no. The oh. book is told in chronological order from his childhood in New York, and then he moves to Vegas with his father and Xandra, and then he goes back to New York, and he stays there for a couple of years before he reconnects with the barbers. So what happens in the movie where you start off in New York and then he drives off in the cab, and all of a sudden Ansel Elgort wakes up, and he sort of finds out what happened to the barbers while he was away in Vegas. That was just a very strange placement for that scene, because a big part of that particular scene that takes place about 400 pages into the book, when he meets up with Platt and they go to the bar, and Platt tells him everything that happened to his mother and... Does that, happen, does that happen the same way in the book, where, he, where they just bump into each other in the street and he all of a sudden recognizes him? Yeah, that happens in the book as well, but it, it, it just makes a little bit more sense in the book because um, the whole idea is that he hadn't really thought about the barbers for such a long time because he was ashamed. Hmm. Because while he's in Vegas, and we'll talk about this a lot more, uh, he and Boris get up to a lot of crazy shit and he just kind of neglects to think about what he did in New York. He doesn't really keep in touch with Hobie. He doesn't really keep in touch with Pippa. And then when he actually goes back to New York... He feels so guilty about not having stayed in touch with them that he's there for almost a decade without reconnecting. Right. And then one day he just kind of runs into Platt and yeah, sure, it's a bit awkward that they recognize each other. Um, but then when they go to the bar together and all of a sudden Theo realizes um, what, what went on in the barbarous lives and how drastic some of the changes were that happened, it really kind of hits you. And that doesn't happen in the movie because you hadn't really had a chance to connect with Theo long enough for that scene to have any proper impact whatsoever. Right. I, don't, I think the big problem for me was that, like, you don't really understand quite how he feels about them. Like, he'd become slightly better friends with Andy, so he's obviously not happy that he's not around. He'd uh, become closer to Samantha, played by Nicole Kidman. and But, like, you don't truly understand just how he feels towards his family overall He's, I mean, seems pretty indifferent when he gets engaged to their daughter, um, and and that's a problem in the book too, though. I'll get okay. To that. Well, and yeah, obviously he's not supposed to be in love with her. He's supposed to be in love with Pippa, but it's like, I, it's just hard to know like what his overall feelings are towards his family. Where it became clear that you know, uh, 
they they could have given him a much better life than his than his dad did but at the same time like he's built a seems what seems i mean while obviously he's addicted to drugs he's built a at least a, he's doing somewhat well financially on his own before he even like get, uh ends up coming back with their family so you don't really know what his aims are and i guess as i'm watching this i i guess i was just like all right i i just don't really know how you're feeling about things like yeah you kind of like pippa but you don't exactly seem like you're about ready to go track her down in london either and you're kind of just aimlessly being a drug addict floating around doing whatever and i don't really know what you want in life and i guess i'm watching this movie and i'm i'm hoping it's going to turn into like one of two things i'm hoping it's going to turn into like a just a modern great expectations and he's it's just really going to get deep into like just his interactions with his family and how he's going to ingratiate himself with them and yeah we're, they could have been a benefactor at some point as he thinks they're going to be like an even greater benefactor or i just wanted to like be straight up like a different version of the talented mr ripley and i just wanted to like just be a straight up con man you know and i was like i was just hoping it would like just pick one of those lanes and it just doesn't and i i i just kind of i it just didn't really become any one thing and i guess that's where i think it ultimately fell short where maybe it's just trying to stuff in a lot of different moments from the book and just didn't really know how to organize it and i I, i'm not inherently against jumping back and forth a lot but it didn't seem like it did it with any like real purpose or rhyme or reason yeah there's absolutely no rhyme or rhythm to this movie whatsoever and i think a big Part of that is that it sort of feels the need to compartmentalize its different plot points. Mm-hmm. So first you start off with the barbers. And then when he leaves New York, they feel they need to go back to the barbers, even though he just moved to Vegas, because you kind of need to wrap up that plot line. And then he's in Vegas. Well, not really in Vegas. He's in this kind of deserted community in the desert, and we never actually get to see Vegas, but that's a different story. So you do all of that. Then he gets back to New York, and then he gets engaged. You sort of need to wrap up that business, and then... After a long time, they realize, oh, wait, Pippa is supposed to be the love of his life, but we haven't really seen a lot of Pippa, so now let's bring Pippa back, and they can spend some time together. And that whole thing goes on very quickly, and you never really get to appreciate how much of a defining factor she is in his can life. We, can we talk about Pippa? Like, is that, oh, yeah, is, that sure, done better, is that done better in the book, in your opinion? Yeah, because Pippa is somebody who always just randomly comes back into his thoughts, and she just kind of tethers him to reality and sanity. Was she so, supposed to be? Uh, does it make it clear in the book? Because I'm not sure if it made it clear in the movie. Was she? Uh, was she living with uh, at Hobart and Blackwell her whole childhood, or just right after her uh, after her uncle died, and she was just temporarily there? Like, had she been? Had she grown up in that store? Yeah, because her okay. mother passed away from I think it was cancer at some point um, early in her life. So okay. she'd been so she'd been living there for a pretty long time. Okay, I didn't and know that was like whole... that was like her full time guardian because then like Kayla and I were talking about it and we we're like, wait, like she's later talking about how much she misses New York and it's like the only time we saw her in New York was when she was like confined to a bed for two weeks and then like had to go back to live with her aunt in Texas or something, you know? Yeah, the book makes it a lot clearer gotcha. that she had been there for a long time. And there's also this component in the book where she actually goes to a, a school for. Uh, I guess, special needs people in Switzerland because her brain had been severely damaged in the explosion, oh. which is kind of briefly mentioned in uh, their first encounter. But, 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 but I, I was going to ask you this because you seem like a, I mean, I, I consider you a pretty worldly person, Fred, who has a lot of varied interests. Uh, when you were 13 years old, did you have deep discussions about classical composers? About Beethoven? Yeah. No, not so much. <laughs> and I were getting a real kick out of that. We're like, wow, these kids are the most pretentious kids we've ever seen. Just like <laughs> about how into classical music they're like, what what 12-year-old just like puts on Beethoven if that's what they're going to put on their iPod, you know? <laughs> yeah, a lot of these characters are incredibly elitist and that also uh, uh, that extends to the children. In the but, you'd say, well, but you'd say well, in the book she's just like more established as a character and it, it, makes, yeah, it, it makes a lot of other stuff maybe click in the place a little more. Yeah, because... I mean, Theo is a deeply damaged soul who, again, is, like, really addicted to drugs. He can't keep his life together. Um, He always wants to quit, but then he just jumps right back into it. And Pippa seems to be the only person that just kind of keeps him chained to sanity a little bit. Like, whenever he thinks of her, he realizes this is somebody I would really like to clean my act up for. Mm. Um, But it just never works out because first she goes to Texas to live with her aunt, and then they don't really get to spend time together in New York because she always visits Hobie for Christmas and Thanksgiving, but he's obviously in Vegas with his father. And then when he's back in New York, Pippa has her boyfriend in London. So they always just kind of run into each other. But at the very least, because you read the entire thing from Theo's perspective, you know how much she means to him. Mm -hmm. And that's why that scene where they actually at dinner together and she actually reveals to him how she feels and why she thinks that they shouldn't be together 
that scene even worked for me on screen because I knew it from the book. Right. And I had that, and I had kind of the background knowledge to fall back on, but I can only imagine how it must have felt to somebody who's only watching the movie because it doesn't really pay off emotionally. It's the first time the two of them are really in a room together interacting as adults. Right. And yeah, there isn't much of a payoff to that if you never got to see them grow. Well, she, she stopped into the antique store uh, with her fiance at some point. And yeah, as far was- as we know, it's like they've interacted then and then they've interacted when all of a sudden they're like out at a bar and that's it. So. Exactly. That's all the movie makes it seem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess maybe, I don't know. It's just hard to like piece together all these parts of his life. And I guess like you're saying, if, and we still haven't talked about a lot of his life, but it's like, it's, it's hard to like understand like, like why, why should we really care all that much about her? And I guess it's just the movie. Who knows? I bet they probably, this movie is like two hours and like, I think like two hours and 30 minutes. And I, they probably yeah, shot, they probably shot like over four hours of material. So who knows? Maybe like they just, for whatever reason, decided to cut a lot of the stuff with her. Um, cause they really wanted to hang out in Vegas with, uh, with Ukrainian Finn Wolfhard. I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't know. So, I'd be very, I'd be very intrigued if they really shot as much footage as you say they did perhaps. Most movies do if they're that long. If, if they, I would be very interested to see what would happen if you put all that footage back together and actually put it in chronological order the way it is in the book. Hmm. Because the way it stands right now is, with the exception of maybe the first 30 minutes and the last 30 minutes, you could take the entire middle section, an hour and a half worth of scenes, rip them out, drop them on the table, mix them all up, randomly put them back together in the movie, and I don't think the movie would be any less incoherent or messy (laughs) than it is right now. That's a really good point. Like, I mean, if you put it in order, like... It's not going to be worse. This movie can't get much worse. At the very least, there is going to be a stronger sense of character development of these people going from point A to B and some of the choices they make in adulthood. That's a really good um, point. Might make make more sense if you've seen their entire childhood play out by that point already. Maybe. So what do you think the the most important thing to take from his time in Las Vegas was? Do you think it's kind of – one telling you how this is like somewhat a story about class and how the situation the environment in which you're raised can really dictate your entire life uh is it about addiction or is it about something else or what did you think that we were supposed that we were supposed to take from that time in theo's life which i guess really isn't probably more than a year or two Mm. so the movie actually really undersells that part of his life because you get the sense that uh him and boris they kind of like they take some shots together, they drink beer, they occasionally do drugs, they get high once or twice. At least that's how the movie shows it, right? Yeah. And there's that one scene where they lie outside by the pool and they share secrets. In the book, it's about 150 pages of them just like binge drinking, getting high all the time, projectile vomiting into the pool. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually really repulsive and gross to read about. But it kind of makes you understand just how messed up Theo becomes during that part of his life. And the movie doesn't really convey that properly. You get the sense, yeah, he's kind of doing dumb teenage stuff the way we all do, maybe a little bit more so. But I never got the sense that— I projectile vomited in pools all the time during my teenage years, let me tell you. All right. (laughs) God, it's a miracle that you didn't end up like Theo. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so I felt like that the movie shortchanged those scenes. And the other thing that I think is very important to note is that the way— Luke Wilson plays his father. It's just kind of like this cartoonish doofus. Did you laugh out loud the first time he came on screen? I was like, oh, I, yeah. I think I, I think I'd seen he was in the movie, but then I forgot about it. And all of a sudden it cuts to him when he's in the barber's house and Kayla and I just started cracking up. We're like, we're just really jarring too, because up to that point, the movie had been kind of um, depressing and not very emotional. It's all very muted because clearly Theo is still grieving. And all of a sudden him and Sarah Paulson show up and especially Sarah Paulson just moving into the frame. Hi, I'm Xandra. You just kind of feel like this is a very weird way to change things up all of a sudden. But mm. the point I wanted to make is his father actually really isn't as much of an idiot in the book. In the book, you actually get the sense for a while that there is a chance that he's genuinely trying to change, that he's making an effort to get to know his son better, that he might be cleaning up his, little, his act a little bit. Um, yes, he gambles and he bets on games, but he actually does very well for a while. Hmm. And in the movie when he asks um about when he tells theo hey i want to open up a savings account what's your social security number you right away are like oh what a fucker like so so it's it's not like it's not that obvious no, and heavy-handed in the book that he's like all of a sudden just a scheme schemer 
Not at all. In the book, when he makes that suggestion, actually, like they go out to a nice dinner and he actually takes Boris to dinner as well. Like they all grow very close together. And you get the sense, you know what, maybe this guy's for real. Maybe he genuinely has some regrets about how he treated his son and how he treated um, Theo's mother and he wants to make amends. I mean, you still get the sense that he's a bit of a scumbag, but at least that possibility is very seriously entertained. Here, the first time you meet him, you know the guy's a lost cause. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's a mess, and it, I mean, it makes it more understandable, I guess, that he would fall into like drugs and alcohol. But it seems like he hits he he kind of falls into those vices even heavier in the book, despite having a in theory a better support system. Which it, I mean, which is interesting. Uh, but yeah, I don't know how, how did how did you think based on what your impression was of Boris in the book? What did you think of the the filmmakers' decisions to cast such a recognizable young actor? Who and have him do an accent? Uh, what did you make of that? I honestly, I honestly didn't think it was that bad. Yeah, I think I, I, here's the thing: I don't think anybody can do an Eastern do an Eastern European accent and don't sound a little bit ridiculous, regardless of what actor you put in that role. Hmm. And I think Finn Wolfhard kind of looked the part, in all honesty, from the way he's described in the book. I mean, when they walk back to his house and he opens up an umbrella because he doesn't want the sun touching his like <laughs> I gotta get face. That. I'm just like, wow, you are literally a character that walked in from a Tim Burton set. But <laughs> that that aside, yeah, I, I thought he was well cast. It's interesting because he's in it chapter two as well, obviously. So it's nice that we're getting uh, to see him do so many things. I, I, I appreciated the flex. You know, I, I don't know if it's like, oh, my God, it's like such an amazing performance. But like it's like, yeah. you know, he's obviously like the Stranger Kids things are just immensely popular. I mean, that's a very popular show. They all have like over 10 million or 20 million Instagram followers. Like he's just like probably feeling himself after the third season comes out and then it chapter two comes out. He's like, I'm going to like just go go all out in this have an accent in a movie. And it wasn't like super super bad like i don't know what a, a good version of that even necessarily looks like i mean some people seem like they're being kind of cynical about it and just saying like this is a disaster of a decision but i'm not like I, I don't know that many eastern european folks that i can think of yeah. on the top of my head right now like that's an authentic europe eastern european accent in that way so i was just like all right well i guess this is interesting i'm just kind of curious how this is playing to people that are more familiar with the source material but i i again i i agree that it wasn't bad but it was like all right this is this is a choice. You know, I guess I'll go along with it for now. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to put too much blame too much blame on Finn Wolfhard when the writing messed up a lot of uh, the scenes in Vegas. Um, just because his relationship with Boris um, doesn't really have isn't nearly as fleshed out. For example, Boris also has a girlfriend in the book, um, and the girlfriend actually is the one that supplies them with drugs and. Theo actually gets kind of jealous because Boris spends so much time with her and he really doesn't like his girlfriend because um, obviously she's hanging out with shady people and uh, Boris gets increasingly uh, crazy and willing to do illegal stuff. All, none of that happens here in the movie. Is there a, is there a similar thing where it, they hint at Boris being gay in the book despite having a girlfriend? And is that kind of any more developed just through what you see about the relationship? Does it make a little more sense or not seem quite out of nowhere uh. yeah so, so in the book it's definitely a little bit more clear that that is the direction they are going in um and i think so i'm not really an expert on the subject whatsoever but it's not all that uncommon for teenagers to have these kinds of experiences and i would say that the book does a pretty good job making it clear that theo has these kinds of feelings for boris um or at the very least he's asking himself whether he has those feelings it's not really picked back up again when they're adults. But at the very least, you do get the sense from the way he describes his friendship with Boris. And again, because Boris does have a girlfriend and Theo gets jealous, uh, that he might have these sorts of romantic feelings. Gotcha. But, and this is something that Hollywood movies love to do, and one of the latest culprits was um, Fantastic Beasts. Whenever there is a very prominent gay relationship, the, there is really not that much interest to flesh to flesh it out. I mean, Dumbledore and Grindelwald was a good example of that. Yeah. And, and yeah, and now here, this is another very good example where there are definitely elements that could have been explored, but the movie wasn't really interested in doing that and just kind of... And the movie's already so long. I mean, I don't... The whole movie feels so inessential to me that I'm not really the one to say like, oh, here's what you should cut out. You know, I, I, so I can't really pick out one thing where it's like, you should do away with that. But I know like, if you really just want to like go all in on 
figuring out what their relationship means and who's feeling what at any given moment, then you're at a three hour movie. So I'm not going to dwell too much on that. I was just kind of curious how that, how that played in the book. Um, and I mean, at this point, like I, I, you know, I was a little intimidated, like, but about how to talk about this movie. And I'll just say right now, I don't even think we're going to do a separate spoiler section because it's too hard to like chop this movie up and the way it jumps around. All right. And at, so, I mean, who knows? Like, no one saw this movie last weekend, you know, like made like like less than three million dollars. So, yeah, this is just what, a budget be, of what, 40 million? Yeah, 45. 45. So, yeah, this podcast is going to be for like you and me and the other the suckers that weren't planning on doing a podcast that still went and saw it anyway. And I, yeah. I, I'm not going to take this as the point where like we make a recommendation on someone's seat or not because, I mean, people already can tell that we aren't very impressed with this movie. So, I, I, I I was just saying that to say that before we actually jump ahead a little bit because it jumps to it jumps ahead and we already touched on it a little bit how when he gets back to New York he's kind of dealing with Pippa but also that he's becoming become engaged to the barber's daughter Kitsy and I don't know like I mean what are we supposed to think that like Theo's motivations are for at that point in his life So I would say to an extent Theo found something that he's genuinely good at uh, which is something that he takes a lot of pride in, that he can uh, sell the furniture that Hobie makes. How good is and he, though? Because he, we're, we're then led to believe that he has to, like, kind of lie a little bit to, like, even be as successful as they are. Oh, but here's the thing. So essentially what he's doing, and I'm not really sure the movie makes it all that clear. So Hobie is very good at replicating, like, antique furniture. And Hobie doesn't give himself enough credit at all. He shows them to Theo and says you know, this is something I sort of do for fun, but obviously anybody could tell the difference. And then Theo eventually realizes that people can tell the difference. So he's very good about selling these fakes to very wealthy clients. They buy them off of him and he gets the store out of debt. And that's how he can afford his very lavish lifestyle because you don't really get to make that much money when you live like in an apartment above uh, an antique store, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's very good about pitching this furniture to people who don't really have a very good understanding of um, furniture, but he's so good at selling uh, these items that they believe him right away. Right. So he's a really good salesman, even uh-huh. if he's not an honest one, I guess is the point. And yeah, yeah, he's, absolutely. He's enjoying being good at something. And Right. And he also needs to finance his drug addiction somehow, which isn't cheap either, obviously. Right. Yeah, I, I guess I guess my, my issue, though, with the latter half of this movie is that like I was wondering, okay, well, yeah, he's kind of into Pippa, but like, what are we, what are we like, I don't know if I say, what are we rooting for necessarily, but like, where, wh- where's the sense of urgency? What are we, what should we be hoping to see happen? Where does the movie feel like, or does the book more so than the movie feel like it's like headed towards something or building towards something? Cause I just never really felt like this movie was really building towards anything. Yeah. And I think that's a problem with the book as well, that it's a bit aimless in that sense um, of leading up to an ultimate goal. And that's why I think the ending in the book is not quite as anticlimactic as the one in the movie, but it has a very similar issue that it wraps up things very awkwardly. You don't really get a strong sense of closure and it's difficult to get there when you don't really know what it is you're waiting for. Right. Right. And I think that's in part because Theo is very passive character from the get go. Um, He's more active in the book because you know what he's thinking and what he's feeling. Hmm but he's somebody who just reacts to events happening around him. And a big part of that is also that he spends a good chunk of his life just thinking and obsessing about the painting. And that is not something that is conveyed in the movie at all. But there are pages and pages in the book where he's just worried about what is going to happen if I get caught. What do I need to do to make sure that this is the secret stays hidden forever. That it's my painting. Well, we see him. We see him go back a lot to that storage unit, if nothing else. I mean, I guess he obviously doesn't unwrap the thing or whatever. So we we know he's thinking about it. But like, does the book make more clear what he wants to do with it? Does he see it as a nest egg that he'll be able to sell at some point when people f- for like can, nope. can can meet the right people to buy it? Does he like what what is he what does he want to do with it? It's just something that he's very possessive about. He doesn't ever want to sell it. I mean, he doesn't even open it up. I didn't know if it, I, if it doesn't mean, I didn't know. I, yeah, I just didn't know what it symbolized to him and why it meant that much. If it was just like a, I don't know. I felt like it, we should have understood that a little more, but I didn't know if something was going over my head. So uh, the history of the painting is really fascinating, actually. And it's briefly alluded to in the movie as well that uh, right. some, uh, it was, I think it was a munitions factory that exploded nearby or something. And the studio of the painter that, uh, painted the goldfinch, burned down, mm-hmm. and the painter was killed. 
Right. And the goldfinch was one of the very few paintings, I think one out of three or four, that was pulled from the rubble. Correct. So the painting survived that fire, and then it survived the explosion again in the museum. And, I mean, when the old man dies, he essentially tasks Theo with taking the painting and uh, keeping it safe. So I think that is a task he internalizes to a point where he just never wants to let down the old man and um, give the painting away. Which, which is interesting because eventually it gets to a point, and we haven't really talked about the big twist yet, the reveal that Boris shares with him. Yeah. Um, it does get to a point eventually where he actually wants to turn the painting into the authorities. Hmm. That does happen. Um, once they make it to Amsterdam and once they have this big plan to recover it, Theo's idea is once we have the painting back, I don't want to keep it. I want to give it to the authorities because people should have access to it and um, nobody should think that such a big treasure um, of art has been destroyed. Hmm. And he has a huge argument with Boris about it, and that leads to a slightly better payoff in the book than it does in the movie, and I'll get to that later. But the painting itself plays a much bigger role in the book, or at the very least, it's brought up more often. Here, you get the sense that they just bring it up occasionally to remind people that it still exists. Yeah, okay. Well, I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, and the reveal is interesting in the movie because you don't really have a, at least in the movie, you don't have a full sense of what exactly him and Hobie have going on. Like, are they kind of in something a little more uh, that's below board more so than we realize? And I'm like, huh, when this FBI agent, or not this FBI agent, this other, uh, this other guy that he's already sold some stuff to is like kind of calling him out. I'm like, oh. Lucius Reef, yeah. Well, yeah, I was like, oh, is he actually like, does he actually know exactly what's going on? And do they have something kind of illegal going on on the side? And so it was kind of interesting, I guess, like not really knowing exactly yeah. what they were doing. And I, it, it's, it's, it's just not clear. They don't make it clear that like, uh, what exactly their business operation is and what exactly they're doing. And I thought, Oh, maybe they are, he did go in it with them or he did talk to him about it a little bit or something. And maybe I should have, should have realized that wasn't the case. Cause we do see him in the storage unit multiple times throughout the course of the movie but that's where my head was but then the reveal of boris is obviously like a big moment and i um i i mean i, I didn't really know what else to make of it i guess it kind of made sense that he just wouldn't open it he, if he, he didn't really feel the need to actually physically look at the thing uh but i don't know i guess i guess there's something to the idea that like if we had just known a little bit more about like how he was feeling about the painting, like you're saying, he felt some kind of duty based on its history. And we do hear the history, but I just, I just don't think you have enough of an understanding. Like we're seeing him in this hotel room and uh, trying to kill himself or seeing him just dealing with all these European mobsters. And I'm like, I, I just looked at Kale at one point. I'm like, why are we here? Like, <laughs> what is the, what is this movie? Why, why does, why does this, why, why is this happening? All because of like, he wants to track down some painting that he already had in storage anyway. And I guess that, that, that was just like the, the, the lowest point of the movie for me. Like I'm at what should be the climax and I'm just like, ugh, like I, I, I don't really care. Also because they ran through that. So the interesting thing is when the reveal is presented in the book, mm -hmm. um, I thought it was pretty jaw dropping. Actually, I wasn't expecting it at all. It came totally out of nowhere. I was right. very impressed. Huh. Um, and the first reaction Theo has in the book, actually, is one of relief almost because he was always afraid he was going to get caught. And this fear that he would uh, eventually um, like end up in prison because of this actually kept fueling his drug addiction just to take his wow. mind off that. So initially he's relieved. He's like, oh, wow. So Boris basically solved all my problems. And then again, he gets possessive again and realizes I never had this painting. Like I've been living a lie all this time. I need and to then, fix it. Yeah, and, and then interestingly enough, as opposed to the movie where Boris just walks in on his engagement party and tells him, let's go to Amsterdam, they actually spend a decent amount of time investigating in New York together about where the painting ended up after it got lost in Miami. So eventually they come up with this information after about 100 pages, and then they go to Amsterdam together, which also takes up a much bigger chunk in the book. In fact, there are about 40 or 50 pages in the book of him just contemplating uh, suicide in the hotel room. Oh, God. Because at, because at that point... Well, because at that point, he isn't even sure if Boris is still alive. Because when the shooting in the parking garage happens, Boris takes him away in the car, drops him off at the hotel, drives off. And Boris is so sort of delusional at that point and rambling that there's a very good chance he might have just bled out in the car afterwards. At least that's a possibility that's entertained in the book. Um, and then interestingly did, enough, did, Boris... Did, did you see the movie Crawl? 
Uh, no. Okay, that, that is the one with the alligators in Florida that came out yes. a couple months ago. Yes. But, like, uh, the thing about that movie is people kept getting bit by alligators the whole time, and they just kept, like, marching on through like nothing happened. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Boris recovered very quickly from that gunshot. Like, he's not in a sling. He's, uh, he seems totally fine in the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, in the book, like, there's a very real possibility the guy is dead. Yeah. And then when he shows up in the hotel room, interestingly enough, he shows up with a shit ton of money. <laughs> and Theo initially suspects that he recovered the painting and sold it, even though he promised Theo that he would recover the painting for him. Mm. And you get the strong suspicion that Boris lied yet again, that the entire friendship has been based on lies. And as Mm. it turns out, Boris actually handed in the painting to the authorities because they gave them this tip, they raided the apartment, found a whole bunch of other paintings, and the millions of dollars he walked in with is the reward money that they collected <laughs> for uh, the tip that they provided. So that, that is a, so that's a change. That's a big change they made in the in the movie. Uh-huh, which I thought was actually a slightly better payoff because Boris uh, is actually very impressed that uh, Theo came up with this brilliant idea to make all this money totally legally. Like all we had to do was go to the authorities and give them <laughs> the paintings and man, we've made millions of bucks in one sweep. If I'd <laughs> known that years ago, I would have done this a long time ago. Right. Well, I, I guess I guess in the in watching the movie, I was just like, if he was just so content then to like have them have the have the painting back at the authorities, like why were you all the way over here like risking your life to begin with? If that's if that's all you really wanted for it, and I, I guess th- you're saying like the book like spent a lot more time having him like contemplate that, and we just don't see that in the movie, and that's just exactly. I, I feel like if you're going to end the movie at the point that the movie ends, you got to like show some of that, and. I haven't really talked to you that much about Ansel Elgort, but I mean, I think one of my problems though with the movie too is that like I, I just I, I just don't know like I mean maybe maybe the way you read the character in the book like it, it seemed like he was right for the part, but I mean yeah. I I liked Ansel Elgort in other movies I've seen him in. I I and the first time I ever saw him was in the Carrie remake, and I thought he was like really good in that. Yeah. He's uh, which I mean I'm kind of it's one of my bigger movie shames is that I've seen that remake of Carrie, but not the original Carrie. Oh, um, but that's just me being yeah. like a Chloe Grace Moretz fanboy, uh, but like. Like he's like the he's kind of like the jock that like uh, may or may not be interested in Carrie, and it's like really compelling performance where it's like you don't really ever know what the guy's thinking, but it's very charismatic. It's extremely charismatic in The Fault in Our Stars. The dialogue in that movie is just as ridiculous as the dialogue the kids have in this movie, but he sells <laughs> he sells it very well. And yeah. he's like he's like super super cool and Baby Driver. And oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think he's he's best when he's being like charismatic and cool and charming and. I don't know if I'm just wasn't prepared to see Ansel Elgort like being withdrawn and brooding and introspective, and it just didn't work as much for me. So I'm like saying like I, I keep saying how it's like oh I would have rather him gotten into his head and seen more of this and seen more of this, but at the same time I was already kind of like turned off whenever I heard that voiceover. So maybe it wouldn't have made things better for me. Yeah, that's part of the problem. He's not a very expressive character in the books either, but because oh. you're in his head the entire time, yeah. you, you understand him a lot better. Right. And it's just a very difficult character to translate to the screen. So I think they did a good job casting casting Ansel Elgort and making it a somewhat passive performance because that's just who Theo is. He's oh. surrounded by much more interesting and much more lively characters. So he's like uh, supposed to be as handsome as El- Ansel Elgort, so it works, I guess, or... I'm not sure if he's necessarily supposed to be handsome, but I mean, the glasses are a very essential thing about his personality, of course. And he is kind of nerdy. And again, he listens to classical music. He reads all of these literary classics. Mm -hmm. Him and Pippa have this book exchange program going on that whenever they see each other, they uh, give each other the latest book that they have read. Um, So he's kind of Supposed yeah, to I guess be I just as, didn't buy him as a nerd, I guess. It's just my it's a personal thing, I guess. I guess yeah. it better for some people than others. Yeah, and it also clashes a lot with Boris because in the it's kind of um more subdued in the movie, but in the book, Boris just can't shut up. Like he just like talks and talks like a waterfall almost. Uh. Um like it's sometimes difficult to keep up almost what he's trying to say. And in the movie they didn't really go for that all that much. Yeah. Um a couple a couple of other interesting things. Yeah. Um Hobie is actually white in the book. Huh. which I thought was a pretty interesting casting choice. Apparently, Liam Neeson and Ray Fiennes both passed on the role, um, which is interesting because I thought Jeffrey Wright was probably the best performance in this movie, when you think about it. I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, he just seemed natural. like It was a very organic performance, just mm-hmm. kind of very calm, very um, just kind and generous. Like He was believable in the part, and I like that. Because I, I could have seen either of those other two guys doing it, but I'm just as happy that it ended up uh, being Jeffrey Wright. Like, I mean, it's, it's, I, I sometimes like seeing Liam Neeson like 
just try and do other things besides Action Star, and mm-hmm. he's good at it when he wants to do it, and I, I, I totally could have worked, but it's also, I mean, interesting that it happened to be a, a black person, and I mean, you can think about what that means, but it doesn't. The movie doesn't yeah. need to dwell on it too much either. You know? No, and it works nicely because when I read the book, I already knew who had been cast in that role, so I just oh, saw okay. him as Jeffrey Wright the entire right, time, right. even though he was described as white. I just thought, oh, good call. Like you found an actor that you thought was good for the role and picked him. Nicole Kidman just kind of seems to uh, get stuck playing caring mothers at this point. I mean, it was basically the same performance that she already gave in Lion a couple of years ago. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, her performance in Aquaman, Big Little Lies. Um, so well, I don't, I don't I, I'm a big Nicole Kidman fan, so I I don't think you can undersell what she did on Big Little Lies. Like that's like I'm a, not that, a, that, oh, I'm not under, I'm not underselling that. At no, all. I'm just saying like, I I can't disagree with some of that other stuff where she's just like the mom, but like Big Little the Big Little, Big Little Lies performance is like something more than the mom. Oh, the, oh, that's true. Like it's a terrific performance, but yeah. I just think that it's kind of funny that whenever you have like a mother like who is successful like in her career as well and who is simultaneously raising her children that Nicole Kidman kind of seems to be the first person that comes to everybody's mind now but but always happy to see her in movies but yeah other than that it's incredible because I'll say I if you're if if we're just talking important oh sorry finish what you're gonna say though I was just gonna say because you have a lot of talent in this movie, like in front of the camera and behind the character. We haven't even talked about Roger Deakins yet. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's, the movie looks great, unsurprisingly. Yeah. Oh, fantastically. Yeah, absolutely, like picturesque, like beautiful to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a two-and-a-half-hour screensaver on a computer, and I'm sure it would look fantastic. It, it is interesting. Like, I mean, sometimes when, like, movies are outright disasters, they're outright disasters in every way, but at least it can be a pretty disaster sometimes, I guess. Yeah, and um, John Crowley, I mean, he directed, did you like Brooklyn? I, I did like Brooklyn. I mean, it wasn't I like did. it wasn't like my uh, favorite movie of 2015. I think it was. 15, I think that was it was either 2014 or 2015. It wasn't like my favorite movie of that year, but it was like I was like, oh well, for a movie of this subject matter, this is about as much as I could enjoy a movie of that subject matter, and I'm impressed. You know? Yeah, I think it was a very uh, sort of romantic, very sweet way of talking about immigration, as opposed to the much bleaker. Uh, the immigrant that James Gray did around the same time. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I thought he would be a great guy to tackle a book like this, something a bit more epic in scope. And it was just spontaneous collective and aptitude by so many very good people normally. Yeah. Um, I'll say, I also actually, I mean, we're talking about the different versions of Theo. I actually liked Oaks Fegley better than Ansel Elgort. I much more so. Yes. I, I like that guy as an actor. I saw Peach Dragon for the first time just a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, I think that was maybe the first thing most people saw him in. And he's like really good in that. And he was also in, um, he's also in Wonderstruck, which I didn't like, but I was, like I was, I was fine with him in that, and I though he actually might have uh, gotten out, outshined a little bit by Millicent Simmons, who people saw in um, the Quiet Place. But uh, I mean, I just thought that like I don't know, I just I just enjoyed him, and like I thought I just bought him more in those like quiet scenes, even if I thought again kind of ridiculous to like have him be like that into classical music and that into art, like what. 12 or 13 year old is like that into that stuff like hard, maybe if you're like in a really privileged environment sure but i just and I, I guess i just like didn't totally buy it but like i was i don't know i i really appreciated him and it's like yes yeah, so it's like him jeffrey wright beautiful movie and in my opinion not a ton else going for it i i really enjoyed nicole kidman but like there's only so much you can do it's just like the matriarch you know like you're just there and um have you have to have a she has to have some kind of connection with the guy and, and i guess she kind of does but i don't know like not not a ton else going on there. Yeah, and what about Sarah Paulson? White trash Sarah Paulson. <laughs> I, very, I mean, very well. Let me put it this way: it, it was a very good performance and very much in line with how Xandra is portrayed in the book. Okay, like spot spot on. Right, really spot on. She is way more of a caricature uh, than um, Theo's father is in the book, so they didn't make too many changes in the movie when it came to her. Um. And I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, I know her very well from American Horror Story. I've seen her play a lot of these characters. So it's such a shame that you have both her and Jeffrey Wright who do a lot of television in a fairly major movie, and it just ends up being such a disaster. Another very unfortunate. I don't know if it. Ha- I don't know if it has to do with the movie uh, filming the Vegas portion in Albuquerque, but apparently their editor is like the main editor from Better Call Saul, which obviously mm. films out in, out that way. Uh, so, I mean, that's a very respected show and with a lot of talent behind the camera. So 
I mean, talk about an editing nightmare. Like, I don't know if, I don't know yeah. who's, I mean, again, like, unless, like you said, you put this thing in chronological order, I don't know if there's like a good way to edit it, you know? Uh, uh, and I do wonder, I mean, there are people who watch this movie before it gets released. I mean, I wonder, do people sit there, watch this and think, yeah, go us. We created a really awesome movie here. This is lovely and awesome. And, and I wonder emotional. how, I don't know a lot of the mechanics about how things get into film festivals. I, I read about it sometimes with respect to just, you'll hear like a jury president at a specific festival or one of the organizers of a festival, like might make it, you might have a quote here or there on one of the movies that gets in. But normally, like a movie has to get into a festival. I don't know if it was in competition at the festival because sometimes movies just screen at festivals when they're not in competition for the awards. But it's like to even be on the screen at TIFF, at least, at least a handful of people have to sign off on it and think like it was good. I don't know. It's just yeah, not. It's just not often there's a movie that's like we were talking about it before we started recording. It's not often there's a movie that's like this bad that screened somewhere like TIFF, and it was even more pronounced this time around because like most things were pretty well positively reviewed coming out of TIFF. Yeah, and I guess when you make a movie like that, you almost have a carte blanche to an extent because you have a talented director, a proven cinematographer, a great cast, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book yeah. that a lot of people read. Uh, so I think a movie like that is beyond reproach until people see it and realize, oh, man, they just drained all of the emotion and all of the epic scope out of it and just took a bunch of scenes and put them together without any understanding of how they're supposed to fit together. And that's really the saddest thing, you know, that it's, as flawed as the book is, and as much as it sometimes tends to be too flowery and too emotional, it is a very poignant read. Like, it really gets to you. Um, and I just got nothing out of the movie that was even remotely similar to that. And as much as I like to shit on Serenity because it was just a weird watch, this definitely takes the cake for me as the most disappointing and probably the worst movie I've seen this year so far. Yeah, at least Serenity, like was kind of bonkers, you know, like it, it wasn't good, but like, it was like, all right, this is like crazy. And it's headed towards some weird shit with a lot of momentum. Even mm -hmm. if I can acknowledge that it's not really good here. I, I just didn't think the movie had any like strong desire to go in any direction. And yeah, I guess, I guess like you're, like you're saying, like, even if the book maybe like kind of sputters to the finish line in the same way, it seems like just the way the book is written, where you're inside this guy's head, like you're going to kind of feel for him and kind of be a little invested in him more so than just, a movie that smartly probably doesn't want to rely too much on a voiceover is going to try and avoid doing and therefore just can't do it that way. And inherently is just going to have less of a hook because that's the main hook to the book. Yeah. And obviously two and a half hours isn't exactly a short running time for a movie, mm -hmm. but it also begs the question would this have maybe worked better as a miniseries where you can actually invest time in the different portions of his life. Yeah. You can ask uh, that question. You can ask that question about a lot of different movies and I can have, I have different answers to a lot of them. And, I mean, it can't be worse as a miniseries. Like we already said earlier, like if you yeah. cut it differently, it couldn't have been worse. If you cut it up into eight episodes, it couldn't have been worse. You know, um, maybe eight episodes might be a bit much, maybe six. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if there's that much there. But yeah, I, I guess, who knows, if, if you had done that and you just showed everything, I think you're, there's, there's just inevitably going to be fewer blanks for sure. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess it's just this lack of structure and direction is my biggest thing. When we first talked about doing it, I mean, I, I still, I still think we pretty well covered this movie and had a good discussion, mm -hmm. but I guess I may, I mean, in my head, I was like, Oh man, we're going to shit on this movie and have like a good old time laughing. And I mean, I guess when I was watching the movie, I mainly just laughed at these pretentious kids and I, I laughed at Luke Wilson and the rest of it at the time I was like, kind of like, ugh, you know, like I did, I, I didn't have like a strong reaction, even if I laughed more, uh, ironically than unironically. But yeah, I don't know. Are there, do, you have, do you have any other thoughts? Anything else we didn't touch on? I, I, I feel like I've maybe uh, relied on you a little too much just interviewing you, like, what the books say, what the books say, what the books say. But is there anything, do you have any other lingering thoughts about, hey, here's something in the book I thought was interesting that I didn't do, or here's just another random thing I know about the movie? <laughs> I would say when I picked up the book about a month before the movie came out, I was obviously reading it with the hope that this would be maybe a Best Picture Oscar contender or at the very least a well-reviewed movie. I wasn't quite expecting it to be this year's Welcome to Marwan, but uh, that's just how it goes sometimes. I am very happy that I read the book. I, it was a very rewarding experience, and I just don't read enough to begin with, partially because I do watch a lot of movies and I write about them, so I don't have a lot of spare time to read. So I've decided to um, try to connect the two, which is why I read The Goldfinch, and I'm 30 pages into Motherless Brooklyn right now. Ooh, okay. So I'm... And I, I know that you're reading uh, Little Woman right now, so 
Oh, I've um, not started it, but I mean, that's the oh, thing. Okay. I, I mean, that's my next plan. Like, I, I'm the same way as you. Like, I watch so much TV and movies, I just don't make enough time to read. I'm, like, going to finish up the oral history of The Wire I've been reading for, like, a year and a half. And then I'm going to start Little Woman. And, like, I don't – I mean, it's different from The Goldfinch, and The Goldfinch is, like, a new book, and uh, mm-hmm. Little Woman's an older book that's been adapted, like, countless times. But my thing oh, yeah. is, like, I kind of I, – I think it's dangerous to maybe, like – do what you did and like read the book right before you see the movie. I think you're not regretting that now because like the book was just clearly so much better, but oh, sometimes, yeah. but sometimes like you might just end up being able to pick something apart too much because you're just like coming right off of reading the, the source material straight into a movie. And maybe you're just going to come on picking it apart too much. I feel like if I start little woman, like in a week or two and then read the whole thing, one, it's not going to be too fresh in my head when I see the movie, but two, this thing's been adapted so many times. Like why would Greta Gerwig go back to it? If like, she didn't have some idea to like, do something different like she could do anything she wants after ladybird if she's gonna like do this like yeah it's kind of a flex but at the same time like i feel like someone that's as smart as her is not just gonna like want to make that movie just to make something exactly like something that's already in the book or in one of the other five versions that's been on the screen so i i hope i have like a good experience doing that and i'm gonna like, at least start trying to do that from time to time with different ones and uh i've heard i've heard motherless brooklyn's like a a, a beast of a book too and uh a little, but like I've heard Edward or Norton did something like very different with it. So I'll be curious to like get your thoughts on that too. Um, yeah, at least it's a lot shorter than the Goldfinch. The Goldfinch was almost 800 pages. Motherless oh. Brooklyn isn't even 300. Oh, so wow. So that's, that should that's be a much quicker read. Yeah. Much more doable. All right. Good stuff. And yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's just interesting to talk about how things get adapted and how people go about doing it because there's obviously a lot of different ways to go about it and how you choose. Like, I think they even might change the time period for the Motherless Brooklyn movie from what I heard. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, from the 90s to the 50s. So which is I'm very weird. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Um, but yeah, Fred, before we leave, I mean, uh, we just talked about our uh, reading, but do you have anything else you want to recommend or plug? Uh, so before I forget, because I did that last time, please do follow me on Letterboxd. It's Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. Um, not really a lot of stuff I want to pluck. I do want to remind everybody that the Emmys are next Sunday. So that's definitely something you should watch. Um, it's going to be a last opportunity to cheer for Game of Thrones. Yeah. Or in my case, if you hated the last season... Uh, just hope be, mad, be, that mad when, they, be mad when it wins a bunch of stuff. Yeah, just hope uh, that they don't win uh, some of the more important categories and that other newer shows with more creativity and uh, that are more deserving actually end up with those awards. Well, so I'd tune like to, into that. I have a couple other things I'll plug. I'll plug Succession. I'm in the middle of watching season two. It is great. You'll If you watch it, season one, you're going to be very mad that Game of Thrones got a bunch of acting nominations and Succession got zero <laughs> because Succession is the best drama on television this year. It's not Game of Thrones. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I started Unbelievable on Netflix, which I... I, I don't usually go this into plugging TV on my movie podcast, but I, I don't know. I, I was. It's obviously it's very tough subject matter. It's about a, a young woman that is recants a story after she's sexually assaulted because she feels really a lot of pressure, and there's a lot of fallout after she's charged with making a false police report. There's a parallel timeline where Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver play cops that are investigating similar sexual assaults. I guess they might converge. I don't know. It's based on a ProPublica article, which you could also read, but the, it's like. Really well done. Caitlin Deaver plays the young girl that survives the assault. She's my maybe my favorite young actress working today. So it's a very tough watch, understandably, to watch a girl go through that. But it's uh, I think that's the only honest way to tell a story like that. It's uh, I'm enjoying it so far in whatever way you can actually enjoy something of that subject matter. So uh, recommend those couple things. As usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy on Twitter and Letterboxd, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. The podcast Twitter is Rewind Movie Pod and uh, – Email is rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Everyone stay tuned. Coming up next, we'll have a podcast on Hustlers and maybe Ad Astra or Britney Runs a Marathon after that. So a lot of good movies starting to come our way to end September before we really get into the heart of Oscar season. So stay tuned for all that, and we'll see you next time.